This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. Everyone has the brain power to make money in stocks. Not everyone has the stomach. If you are susceptible to selling everything in a panic, you ought to avoid mutual funds and stocks altogether. Those thoughts come from legendary investor Peter Lynch, and there are wise words indeed. The problem with such wisdom is that it's easier to appreciate from afar when you don't need it. But when uncertain times come calling, it puts our faith in the words of investing legends to a test, because uncertainty brings an unsettling question to bear. What if we're not right this time? Hello, I'm Philip Strail, Global Head of Research at Morningstar Investment Management. I'm here to once again welcome you to our podcast, Simple But Not Easy. And this time around, we've got the same thing on our mind as the rest of the market uncertainty. What's going to happen? Why, when, and what should we do about it? Well, in this episode, taken from a recently recorded webinar, we do our best to address those concerns, and we also hope to allay some of those associated fears. To do so, we'll hear from Tyler Dan, our head of research for the Americas, Ricky Williamson, portfolio manager and head of U.S. outcomes-based strategies, and Paul Arnold, co-head of asset allocation strategies. The topics won't surprise you, rising rates, inflation, and a few other potential bumps in the road, nor our proposed solutions, staying the course and thinking of the long term. It's a familiar conversation, but some things need to be reinforced in order to keep our nerves soothed and our hands steady. We'll try to do both in this discussion. We think it's a timely topic and we hope you agree. Let's listen in. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to those who've entrusted your client's assets to us. We really, really appreciate the relationship. Welcome to today's webinar, which is focused on helping to address investors' current concerns and the potential effects of the global conflict. I'm Carolyn Schaflick, a portfolio specialist with Morningstar Investment Management. Today, we want to talk about these topic, three topics leading to a lot of concern and possibly fear among investors right now. That's inflation, rising rates, and the current global conflict. We will dive into these topics for a better understanding from an investor's perspective, which will hopefully help you manage your clients' concerns, which of course are driven by uncertainty and increased volatility. As we've seen in the past, when clients don't understand these key drivers, they're far more likely to give in to some behavioral biases, such as buying and selling in, 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 at inopportune times. So our job at Morningstar is actually twofold. We build robust portfolios, which you're going to hear a lot more about here in the next hour or so. We manage them with a valuation-driven approach to prepare for these situations of rising rates, inflation, and any other concerns that the future may hold. 
Then our other job is really to remind investors that despite what we're seeing and hearing in the news, which we all know is a 24-7 cycle these days, um, investing is really a long-term endeavor. So despite whatever highs, lows, and volatilities we have to endure in the short term, our focus is always going to be on that long-term perspective. So today, we'll be hearing from three experts in this area. Tyler Dan, our head of research in the Americas, will discuss how to talk to your clients about these different concerns of rising rates, inflation, and then the global conflict. Ricky Williamson, our head of U.S. outcome-based strategies and portfolio manager, will walk us through the U.S. real return series, which specifically uses an unconstrained approach to asset allocation, seeking to outpace and actually grow purchasing power during rising inflation over a specific time horizon. And then finally, Paul Arnold, our co-head of our asset allocation strategies, is here to talk about our ETF and our ESG asset allocation series. These strategies are globally diversified core solutions to help clients meet their financial goals. Lastly, we will have some time at the end for Q&A, so please feel free to submit your questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Please try not to use the chat function as we may not see your question there. All right, let's kick things off um, before I kind of kick it over to Tyler. Hi, Tyler. Great for you to, uh, to have you with us here today. Um, 2022 so far has been quite the wild ride. Inflation's at 8.5%, the highest we've seen since the 80s. Uh, I just checked the 10-year yield is hovering closer to 3%, something we haven't seen in a long time. Oil is uh, still above $100 a barrel. Um, you know, if we go to the grocery store, we still see some supply issues that we're kind of dealing with. And now we have the global conflict overseas. So definitely a much different landscape than what we've seen over the past few years, with the exception of COVID, which of course went down in the books as only a two-month recession. So as investors, we definitely, you know, as I mentioned, think it's important to focus on the long term. But can you talk a bit about our investment approach and then why it's important to stick to our investment process, especially during times of heightened volatility? So, you know, kind of what we're seeing here today. Absolutely. Thanks, Carolyn. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, and these are all big issues and they actually are in many ways interconnected with multiple dimensions. So. What I've taken the liberty to do is prepare a few slides, and I'll refer to them. And the first slide, I think, to your point on our investment approach, I thought I'd give some highlights here, uh, and that'll be on slide seven. Um, ultimately, what I'd like to do here is, is share with you how we think and ultimately how we execute upon our investment process here at Morningstar Investment Management. Um, but I would argue that some of the concepts in here, if not all of them, are important for any investor to consider. When we are confronting periods of sources of uncertainty, first of all, you have to stay true to your process. Who are you? What do you do? How do you do it? Uh, at Morningstar Investment Management, we hold ourselves accountable to being long-term investors, meaning we think in, in terms of 10-year periods. Um, we're valuation driven. We're, we're trying to buy things for less than they're worth. Um, and ultimately, we, we're tacking uh, a different direction from the prevailing wisdom. So that's a bit of contrarian spirit that we have. Secondly, I think you want to recognize uncertainty for what it is. And what I mean by that is that you really don't have a great deal of advantage in predicting the future. We don't, you don't, we all don't. 
so the way we approach it is really trying to encompass and incorporate a margin of safety that we require to account for this type of uncertainty. Thirdly, we, in, in our process, really are, we're constantly reviewing the fundamental impact of, of, of elements of uncertainty. So we're constantly researching sectors, countries, different asset classes that are impacted by these uncertainties. And we review our assumptions that comprise what we call fair values that underpin our expected return stream or what we call valuation implied returns. And fourthly, I think that something that's very important is to consider implications for positioning. And you hit on this concept of robustness and Ricky's gonna discuss it a little later as well, but I think it's really important to consider how the portfolio that you have will perform in varying different uh, regimes. And so we monitor and review our portfolios to ensure that our response to changes in valuation levels is measured and thoughtful. Great. Um, thank you so much, Tyler. Okay, so then let's kind of maybe uh, delve a bit deeper into kind of the current global conflict and, and really how that's affected the market. Sure. Yeah, there have been a number of different um, economic implications as well as market implications. Uh, what we've seen from an economic perspective is that, and I'm on slide eight here, um, there's been a surge in energy prices globally, whether it be oil or, or European gas or U.S. natural gas or coal, uh, there's been a pretty significant surge. Uh, there's been uh, fears of, and, and in some cases, actual shortages in grains and metals, which resulting in higher food prices, uh, production costs. Uh, there's also been an increase in transportation and shipping costs, uh, supply chain kinks and shortages from banned air and port space, uh, and then um, rising inflation expectations, uh, clearly heightened risk for stagflation, which is uh, an environment where you have perhaps slower growth and rising inflation or high levels of inflation. And this is particularly uh, a concern in Europe. And then of course, um, the question about how quickly and how significantly the Fed will tighten uh, policy rates from here. The market impact, we've measured it from February 24th to March 31st, and this month has been a very, very tough month. But there's the point of this is, is really that there has been a great deal of dispersion. And so the, comp, the, the sectors of the market, which are deemed to be uh, participating in some of the price increases have have risen, and the the areas that would be most negatively impacted by the crisis have uh, have fallen. And so that's the gist of that slide. And I'll dig in on the next one, which is slide nine, uh, and discuss a little bit about global oil prices. Um, so we've seen an extraordinary swing in the price of oil since the onset of COVID. Uh, we, we actually, it's hard to remember this, but we, we actually went negative uh, in the futures market where people couldn't give away oil for free. Um, what has happened since then is that demand has almost fully recovered to pre-pandemic levels. Um, and, and I think importantly from the supply side, we've seen Pretty significant and consistent constraint out of OPEC countries, whether voluntary, and by voluntary, I mean people like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and United Arab Emirates are actually enforcing quotas. 
and then involuntary, uh, where you've had, for varying reasons, weakness in Venezuela in their production system and also sanctions which have impacted Iranian production. On top of that, there's been a lack of capital spending directed towards U.S. shale oil. And that's been typically viewed for the last, you know, 10 years or so as being the marginal source of supply. Uh, I, my conclusion on this would be that price volatility, um, divestment concerns related to ESG considerations, uh, comparative lack of access to capital, and the, and the governmental regulatory backdrop in the United States has, I think, reduced the marginal availability of U.S. supply, uh, U.S. production to fill that gap. Now, a little bit on Russia here. Russia uh, itself produces 10% of the world's oil. And when you count the former Soviet Union or CIS countries, um, they produce around 15% of global oil. Uh, and importantly, as far as Europe's, the continental European imported oil and petroleum products, uh, Russia supplies approximately 43% of that. Um, there are offsets that um, consuming countries are able to potentially um, deploy. One offset would be uh, that uh, developed world countries have strategic petroleum reserves and and they're selling those reserves down to keep the market well supplied. And I think uh, one unfortunate offset from COVID uh, would be the shutdowns in China, which has um, uh, you know, probably temporarily reduced demand there. Uh, moving to the next slide, another energy slide, we're talking through some, some perhaps a more local consideration on European Union natural gas prices, which have significantly risen. And the environment here is, is, is um, you know, perhaps one you might consider to be one of un, unintended consequences. But there's been a lack of investment in growing and building European Union production. And in fact, this current production has actually been falling for years. Uh, that's led to an increased reliance on imported natural gas from Russia. Russia provides around 56 percent of Europe's natural gas supply, and I think importantly as well, 33% of the gas supplied by Russia to Europe is transported through the Ukraine. So with the war and this corresponding threat of curtailed supply out of Russia, there's been a pivot uh, towards coal, towards imported li liquefied natural gas, or LNG, both from the United States and from other areas. And uh, this has really been also uh, driving increases in local European natural gas prices and exacerbating the local inflation concerns. Moving to the next slide, slide 11, there are some other market implications and I've included three charts on this slide um, and it's illustrative of how key input costs have risen. Uh, they already have been rising, uh, but the war certainly does not help matters. And just a few examples here, copper, uh, Russia is not a massive supplier of copper. They, they are uh, around less than 10% of the global supply, but, but uh, copper supply uh, with supply chain worries has certainly uh, been called into question and, and the price has risen. Wheat here, uh, Russia and the Ukraine provide approximately 15% of the global wheat market, and they're also significant fertilizer producers. And then palladium, uh, Russia comprises approximately 35% of global production. 
And so I guess the point here would be that there was already some supply chain strain that was evident and the war is not making it any better. I think if you think about near term, we, we just discussed that. Longer term though, I think there's this concept of what might be called deglobalization or relocalization. And I think that that also could potentially add to strain in the medium to long term. Moving to the next slide, we're discussing some assets that we call in play. And there are three that uh, are, are resemblant here, Germany, European financials, and China. Um, with regard to Germany, the, this is certainly of interest to us. Uh, uh, there's a significant component of the index there that's composed of autos and industrial companies, and also banks and other financial services companies. Uh, those autos uh, rely on Russia uh, for part of their supply chain, uh, in particular palladium, but also other, other areas as well. Um, the local economies are relying upon imported Russian energy. Um, and so what has ended up happening is that the all else equal, if you will, the, the expected return because the price has fallen, the expected return has risen. And so what we're doing now is we're examining and we're scrubbing our numbers to really ascertain and understand what the long-term versus the short-term effects on the German market will be. Similar with EU financials, uh, you could imagine that there is potentially some direct lending exposure to Russia, to the Ukraine, and, and that is sort of what we would call a first-order impact. There's also indirect exposure, uh, which could be to uh, economies that might be um, directly impacted by the conflict. And there are other considerations as well as far as how balance sheets might be invested, the interest rate backdrop on those balance sheet investments and things like that. So there are a lot of things to consider. Um, what, again, the, the expected return stream, all else equal, looks appealing, but we're in the process of vetting and scenario testing. And then China is probably one of the more intriguing um, fallout, if you will, um, on the surface, looking like a fallout from this conflict. And I think our, our view with regard to this country is that it's you know, already cheap. It was already cheap coming into the conflict and already risky and, and sort of well-known as far as the, the sources of risk in our view. We had been slowly building a position. Um, I think the concerns about the war impact and, and potentially a spillover into the Asia-Pacific region with regard to geopolitical calculus post-invasion uh, has certainly had an impact. But I also think that um, the COVID uh, policy, uh, the, the policy of lockdowns with the intent of trying to have a zero tolerance for the disease, um, you know, has certainly embedded additional growth concerns near term. So we think this is probably a solid long-term allocation, but we think it's really important to be patient here. Great. Thanks, Tyler. Obviously, a lot to kind of analyze, um, ascertain, and you did a great job of, of really kind of explaining to us you know, what the effects of the conflict have in terms of different commodity markets and then also in terms of kind of areas that we're now interested in kind of assessing or reassessing. So thanks so much for that. Um, so let's go ahead and switch gears to inflation. I know personally, I have not been in one meeting since probably September of last year where inflation has not been brought up. Um, you know, obviously, 
it's been increasing each month. That term transitory seems to not be used as much as it was perhaps back in the fall of last year. Um, I know for those of us as just simply consumers, we're all feeling the pain, um, whether it's at the gas pump or at the store. And, and of course, that varies across uh, the U.S. in terms of where you're located as well, with some areas being hit a lot harder than others. So what are your thoughts in it? You know, are we going to see some relief soon? Do we think it's going to continue to move forward? I know we don't predict the future. Um, it's not how we invest. But if you can maybe help us kind of, again, as you did with the global conflict, uh, help us kind of look into that and see what we can get from that and, and kind of maybe make some assessments there. Yes, I'll do my best. Uh, so I think there are some near-term versus medium-long-term dynamics at play here. And I think on slide 13, you'll see how inflation has uh, has really uh, uh, elevated within the near term, and this would be, you know, both on official what we would call prints, uh, meaning the, the the monthly reported year to year changes have been very elevated. They're near forty year highs, um, but also importantly, I think as far as speaking to psychology and expectational mindset. Uh, we may we like to measure the inflation expectations as far as um, what are reflected in U.S. US uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities or TIPS pricing, which imputes what we would call break-evens. And these break-evens have uh, also been significantly elevated, whether it's near-term, but also you know longer-term, medium-term, five, ten-year outlook. Uh, the, the expectations have, have become elevated as well. And I think this speaks to the debate about whether this inflationary uh, trend is transitory, whether it's really more supply chain driven or whether it's mindset, whether it's structural. Uh, and, you know, I think another sub question to that is really how long is transitory? I think some people were thinking transitory meant months. Well, maybe it could be years. Um, so definitely there's a pretty, pretty heated and raging debate and, and we're having that internally for sure. Um, I think that, um, what we like to think about is rather than predicting, we like to be prepared. So we think about contingencies, we think about scenarios and we, uh, I'll, I'll highlight this a little bit later, but whether it's interest rates or inflation, we, we try to think about scenarios and build portfolios around those different scenarios. Um, moving to the next slide, slide 14, there's a discussion here on interest rates. Um, you know, I think the, the market is really trying to price in and understand what the policy response, particularly in the United States, has, will, has been and will be with regard to inflation expectations. Um, the recent commentary by Chairman Powell and other Fed members, I think, would have conveyed an in an intent to increase policy rates at a fairly aggressive pace. Uh, those uh, increases to the policy rate, which, which have not happened materially yet, I think have been priced in to the 10-year, to the 30-year, really across the Treasury curve. Um, and I think that ultimately the implications for fixed income investments will be a function of this trajectory and the durability of these increased rates. But if we move from a regime of a long-term 40-year declining interest rate environment into a regime of durably rising interest rates, that's a very different income, uh, fixed income backdrop. Uh, and, and it's not the end of the world for fixed income investors, but it is a certainly challenging backdrop for fixed income investors. Great. Thanks, Tyler. Um, 
So, you know, you've mentioned, we've mentioned the word robustness, uh, robust here a couple of times throughout so far. Um, obviously, as we're considering all these different concerns and, you know, kind of their collective impact on our portfolios, can you maybe uh, give a bit more color in terms of how we build robustness to help weather these different market environments? Absolutely. So this is on slide 15. We'll discuss this a little bit. But firstly, uh, sort of a working definition of robustness and really it's how we think a portfolio will act and perform during different types of regimes. So we like to think uh, about sort of broad regimes as thinking about it in terms of growth and inflation quadrants. So in other words, high growth and high inflation, low growth and low inflation, et cetera. So that's how we like to think about it is, is performance despite the, the, the backdrop. And, and so this speaks to really an all-weather concept where what we seek to do is really optimize the portfolio mix to be able to accomplish a measure of participation during buoyant markets and also resilience during challenging markets. And I guess our thought here would be that more robust portfolios may have the effect of helping investors to encourage behavior that will help keep them engaged and aligned towards uh, achieving their long-term outcomes and objectives and effectively to keep them in the game, which is half the battle. Um, and I know Ricky's upcoming segment will discuss this in, in more detail, so I don't want to steal his thunder. Great. Thanks again, Tyler. Some really great insights into our views um, at that macroeconomic level. And I think, you know, advisors, I always tell you guys that you wear multiple hats. And one of those is, is being counselor when we experience volatility or uncertainty and, and really, you know, calming your your clients, your investors to not make kind of any rash decisions based on emotion. So, um, you know, really important, especially during times of volatility and uncertainty. So again, Tyler, big thank you um, for hopefully helping our advisors on this call have some additional points that they can um, rely on to their clients. So, um, you know, we mentioned that we're long-term investors, um, but it's still important to obviously be aware of and to assess kind of, you know, our positioning considering the current economic and market environment. So this really kind of positions us well with this backdrop uh, to go a step maybe a little bit deeper into how we construct our portfolios. So now we'll turn to Ricky Williamson, uh, portfolio manager and head of our U.S. outcome-based strategies. And he's going to discuss how we assess that robustness for our portfolios that we've been talking about under different market conditions, and then how that affects our positioning within our outcome-based strategies and specifically our real return series. So. Uh, let's turn it over to Ricky. Great. Thanks, Carolyn. Um, so as we all know by now, and Tyler certainly discussed, there are a multitude of economic and geopolitical forces that can certainly impact asset returns in today's environment. And while we can certainly try to come up with potential return estimates for different scenarios, we're not going to pretend that we have some sort of significant competitive advantage in for forecasting how these geopolitical or macroeconomic events unfold. And while top of mind for many investors, as this should be, are inflation, interest rate developments, and the conflict in Ukraine, um, there's still uncertainties around COVID, around debt levels, around American politics, and around other issues. And then, of course, you know, there's always the unknown unknowns that while we cannot explicitly prepare for, we can try to manage potential exposure to risk assets, really just to ensure you don't get destroyed if a black swan event occurs. So for us, this means that you know, we need to be building portfolios that are intentionally robust and stand their ground in a very wide range of environments and outcomes. 
Um, and to be clear, and we're going to touch on this a little bit more, but we're not trying to water down our highest conviction, best ideas, portfolio exposures. Um, what we're really just trying to do is ask, what if we're wrong or in what environment will our highest conviction allocations underperform or lose money? And what can we do to, with the rest of our portfolio to try to offset the risks that are inherent um, with those positions? And so building on that, um, when we're thinking about diversification, it can sometimes be quite different than what many may have learned in modern portfolio theory or mean variance optimization, not just because, you know, we don't want to over diversify using a kitchen sink approach that will likely water down our return potential, um, but also we don't want to depend on historical relationships across asset classes working in the future. And we've been in this period for the past 35 years where investors have been able to largely count on treasuries, high-quality bonds, acting as safe havens when there's an equity market correction. Um, and while the correct correlations haven't been constant, having a piece of your portfolio in these type of assets has played the role that you've wanted to in risk-off environments. Um, but clearly this year, we're living in an atmosphere where both high-quality bonds and equity markets have been selling off, and there really have been few places for investors to hide. Um, traditional correlations have broken down, and this is why we don't want to be using these historical relationships, historical averages, uh, when we're determining where and how we want to diversify. And there really can be multiple reasons why historical relationships either evolve or shift. Um, sudden shifts can be caused by suddenly being in a macroeconomic environment that we haven't been in in decades, uh, similar to today, but also because the drivers of returns and risk evolved. Um, you know, here we show how sector composition shift. You can also look at how FANG stocks have become so critical to benchmark returns. Um, there's also regulations or ESG risks or tax regimes. These all evolve. Um, so this is why, you know, in our opinion, traditional multi-asset diversification techniques, they can often fall short in an environment like today because there's this reliance on the long-term historical average relationships holding. Um, but as we know, you know, that approach can certainly break down. Um, and so when we think about how we, to approach these concerns, what we're really trying to do is be very intentional with how we're balancing our risks without compromising too much um, on those best ideas positions. Uh, so instead of running a portfolio through some sort of quantitatively driven optimizer that's based on historical relationships, we first start with what are our highest conviction ideas? What are they? What assets do we want to have meaningful exposure to? How much do we want exposure do we want to have to them? Um, are these positions we want to overweight heavily, heavily related in terms of catalysts for return generation or other exposures very similar in terms of what environment they may sell off in? Um, so what we want to do is then be very intentional in how we're diversifying our portfolio to offset those risks that are inherent in our largest positions, either from an absolute or relative point of view. Um, so we begin running our portfolios through a series of tests to ensure we're, we're not overexposed to a particular environment or a particular event. Um, but also to make certain we're not depending, you know, on a low probability event to realize the upside we're seeing in our highest conviction positions. And so obviously an early part of that process is really understanding what we own. Um, when running a global multi-asset class portfolio, it can become, you know, quite a task to understand the drivers of returns for each position you hold. Um, but this is why we believe it's, it's really so important to have a large global team of investment professionals um, to really be performing constant research um, like we do here at Morningstar. Um, in a time like today, we're heavily dependent on our team in Europe to comb through different European sectors to te what, test what different outcomes in the Ukraine conflict may have on returns so we can truly understand our exposure, either direct exposure or indirect exposure to the war playing out in different ways. Um, by diving into these fundamentals, 
you can also understand how different global positions are tied to one another. If you know a large portion of our portfolio is counting on you know a specific catalyst to drive returns, and you know that specific catalyst has a low probability of happening, um, then we're likely in trouble. And so we really believe that being explicit in what type of risks we are exposed to and what the fundamental drivers of returns are is critical. And so, of course, another part of our portfolio robustness checks also include testing, you know, our exposures in historical market extremes, as many other investment shops do. Um, but this isn't to say we believe any of these events could repeat themselves exactly. Um, but we think it's just good to know what general extreme market you may be most exposed to, um, because you may think you're holding a defensive portfolio. But if it underperforms in any of these environments, uh, you really need to start questioning how you're defining defensive. Um, for example. You know, again, for the last several decades, holding long-term treasuries has been defensive, but in Q1 of this year, short-term bonds were defensive relative to long-term bonds. Um, but in the GFC or the COVID sell-off, you know, long-term treasuries are really where you want to be. Um, so each environment is different, and there are trade-offs that you need to think about to prepare your portfolio for a wide variety of environments. And again, part of this process is really starting with your highest conviction positions or biggest overweights, however you want to characterize them. And then looking through history for when those positions performed very poorly. Um, from there, we can try to identify what other positions performed quite well in those specific environments and then think about if we want to add capital to them. An example of this is if you know, your portfolio is very cyclically tilted, uh, so very sensitive to economic growth. Um, so you might be overweight energy names, you might be overweight financial names, high beta emerging market currencies. Um, well, those positions have tend to do quite poorly in economic shocks like COVID or the GFC. Um, and again, the assets that have performed well include nominal treasuries. Um, so when your highest conviction overweights tend to get hit the hardest in a sudden economic shock, you really need to look for positions that perform well in those environments. And those really tend to be you know, those high quality bonds. And so you may consider adding exposure there, even if in isolation, you don't have much conviction in, that, in those assets. Again, it's really being about intentional in what environment you're trying to diversify for. Um, we do think it's important, though, to not just focus on the extremes, um, because more often than not, that's not the environment that you're in. Um, but these middle-of-the-road environments are still characterized by different factors. And so while we're first and foremost long-term valuation-driven investors, as you know, and we look for cheap assets, uh, we must also recognize that in these shorter time periods, um, factors at outside of valuations can really drive asset returns. Um, and one way to bucket those environments is by looking at history through kind of the crossroads of inflation and growth. Um, again, we're not trying to predict or don't think we have a competitive edge in predicting what environment we'll, we will be in in 6, 12 or 18 months time. But we can try to prepare our portfolios for a variety of environments. Um, and therefore, what we do is, is run these hypothetical portfolios through historical periods of high and low growth and high and low inflation and try to examine what environment we may be more vulnerable to from a historical perspective. Um, so as an example, maybe we run our portfolio through these historical macroeconomic regimes, and we notice that we're most susceptible to underperformance in periods where you know, inflation's high, economic growth is low. Um, arguably, it's a key investor concern right now, um, something I certainly think about. Um, historically, what has tended to perform okay in those periods has been inflation-linked bonds, so tips, or consumer staples, or having exposure to commodity prices. Um, so all else equal, um, these may be positions we want to add to in order to make sure that our portfolio performs okay in that environment. Um, and lastly, you know, as, as we mentioned, 
we know history is not always a perfect predictor of future environments. Um, not only does each environment have its own idiosyncrasies, but price also matters. Um, a 10-year treasury bond that has a starting yield of 10% is going to perform quite differently than one that has a 2% yield, even if they're in the same environment, a similar economic downturn, for example. Um, so with history as a guide, we can attempt to project portfolio-level returns by developing forward-looking scenarios by stressing things like the yield curve, credit spreads, equity sector price movements, currency shifts, um, et cetera. Uh, it's certainly an ongoing iterative process, uh, but can be really a large improvement than just looking at history by incorporating current prices as well as hypothetical scenarios that we may not have experienced exactly historically. Um, so in the end, we think that using a variety of tools and robustness checks, while certainly time consuming, is gonna help mitigate the pitfalls of blind diversification where you're simply adding more and more asset classes because it pushes up your efficient frontier. Uh, that efficient frontier is likely built upon historical relationships that may or may not hold true in the environment that you're worried about. And so, you know, try, trying to think about why we care about this, why we care about robustness, and so transitioning a bit, we have talked about, you know, why as portfolio managers we need to think deeply about it in order for us to combat potential underperformance. And we've also talked about how we think about it, you know, at Morningstar. But one other thing that's worth touching on is how portfolio robustness really helps our clients through more than just a period of underperformance. Um, as we know, investors and especially retail investors tend to underperform actual market or fund performance because they tend to divest after underperformance or negative returns, and they tend to invest more after periods of strong returns. Um, Morningstar puts out a report each year called Mind the Gap that really dives into this topic. Um, so one way to combat this is certainly education and training on behavioral biases in order to mitigate this behavior moving forward. But that may only go so far, and certain people will still display the behavior that has them exiting the market at potential bottoms, therefore missing out on the recovery. Um, so since we believe building out robust portfolios should help mitigate drawdowns in periods of extreme risk-off behavior, we also think that this helps clients stay the course, stay invested, and have a better outcome. Um, so then here you just see an illustration of potential client experiences of different types of multi-asset portfolios. So you have this yellow line that represents sort of a market portfolio and may have the highest upside, but also has the lowest downside. Then you have perhaps a more robust, but still quite benchmark relative portfolio that may not keep up in extreme market euphoria, um, but it's also able to mitigate some of the losses in the drawdown. And finally, we have this blue line that we entitled outcome um, that is benchmark agnostic um, and has more muted returns on both sides, but it may end up at the same place in terms of total return throughout the cycle. And we believe that this is the type of investor experience that leads to increased likelihood that, that our end clients will not exit the market and miss out on periods of strong returns that often follow hitting the bottom. Importantly, and perhaps you know it's obvious here, but these lines are just for illustration and simplified. Um, but the benefit of limiting drawdown isn't necessarily just to mitigate losses just for the sake of it. Um, if you limit your drawdowns by investing in defensive assets, you then have the opportunity and the capability to redeploy um, money from those defensive assets into higher return generating assets and likely participate more heavily on the upside than you did on the downside, which isn't necessarily captured here. Um, and so how did we think about this and try to design portfolios and mandates that can best achieve this type of client experience? Um, we built out a series of portfolios that we call the real return strategies 
that are not benchmarked against market-based indices, and rather they have pretty specific absolute return targets returning over inflation. Um, and these are very dynamic, unconstrained portfolios, and they often look you know, quite different than your traditional multi-asset portfolio. Uh, one example of this is the Real Return Flexible Portfolio. Um, it's third on this page. Entered the year with nearly much, nearly as much exposure to alternatives at close to 20% as it did to fixed income at around 25%. And even within that fixed income portion of the portfolio, it was meaningfully underweight the duration of a typical broad-based index like the U.S. Ag. Um, and therefore, while you know it certainly hasn't been immune to losses from both sides of the portfolio, fixed income and equities this year, it ha- has been able to mitigate the drawdown relative to kind of broad market benchmarks. Um, and this is kind of kind of t- ties back to how I began. Um, correlation shift historical averages have been you know a pretty terrible proxy for the period we have been in so far in 2022. Um, so understanding the potential for losses from both sides of your portfolio and even alternatives um, at the same time has really been critical this year. Um, and this is really what kind of what we're talking about when we're thinking through what we call robustness and ranges of outcomes and certainly not counting on recent, recent history as your guide for the future. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to leave it there um, and just try to give some time back to my colleagues. All right. Well, that was a great overview from Ricky. Really appreciate his um, insights into portfolio robustness and hopefully gave you a better understanding of what we're doing here behind the scenes as we're assessing different market conditions and constantly um, working to ensure that our portfolios are best allocated given um, our future uh, return expectations on a risk-adjusted basis. So uh, just a quick reminder again, please remember to submit your questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. And now rounding it out, our last expert, Paul Arnold, is going to join us. So welcome, Paul. Um, but before I hand it over to you, I thought that I would just provide a quick overview of our um, asset allocation portfolios. So if we look to the next slide, um, This takes a look at our ETF asset allocation portfolios. And these portfolios are part of our broader asset allocation series. So they are well-diversified, globally exposed across equities and bonds, both here in the U.S. and outside the U.S., and really providing investors that core exposure for their investments. And so these portfolios are comprised entirely of ETFs or passive funds, and we offer them across five different uh, risk portfolio or uh, risks across the risk spectrum across five different risk profiles, if you will. So uh, from conservative ranging all the way up through aggressive growth, no surprise that as we move further up that risk spectrum, there's a higher um, allocation range to equities. And we do offer these both for tax-deferred and tax-sensitive assets. So um, taking it now to our third and our final expert, Paul, obviously we've talked a lot about the potential for rising inflation and interest rates from kind of that uh, macroeconomic level. And then also from a positioning standpoint with some of our outcome-based portfolios, like our real return series. So how does it factor into your positioning as the portfolio manager for the ETF asset allocation portfolios? Thanks, Carolyn, and thank you, everybody, for jumping on uh, with us today. So uh, I'm glad Ricky went right before me uh, because it's important to note for this series, we don't have uh, 
an actual explicit inflation mandate uh, like the real return portfolios do um, as part of their approach. Uh, it does make our ETF series, uh, in terms of a core portfolio, a great complement to uh, our real return series. Uh, so plug for that. But when we build our target risk portfolio, specifically the ETF portfolios, we're aiming uh, for them to hold up under a myriad of market conditions, but we're not trying to solve for um, you know, specific uh, individual concerns um, or outcomes. For us, it's about uh, meeting long-term financial goals. Um, bringing it back to the, the question of inflation rising rates, uh, we've been concerned about inflation, I, I would say, over the, the near term. So um, as we saw massive amounts of stimulus uh, as a result of COVID, um, you know, we, we started to become very concerned and wanted to make sure that our portfolios had an appropriate level uh, of protection uh, in case uh, that scenario played out. Because um, while we don't have a specific mandate, it really impacts investor returns. Uh, you know, high inflation could have a very serious negative impact uh, on many asset classes. So uh, we boosted our stake in treasury inflation protected securities or TIPS. So in the fixed income portion, uh, we held a pretty sizable uh, off benchmark position there. Uh, we added energy uh, MLPs and energy infrastructure uh, into the portfolio, as well as value-leaning stocks like consumer staples, where um, you know the demand, even in a sort of risk-off environment or an environment with uh, a lot of inflation, where some companies might struggle to pass through that inflation onto consumers, uh, consumer staples are, are areas where people tend to uh, sort of need to spend money, and it might be easier for them to uh, pass along inflation to consumers, and, and theoretically, they could hold up a little bit better. Uh, in terms of rising rates, we've been concerned with rising rates for much longer. Uh, and sadly to say, that's been to our detriment up until recently. Um, our base case for many years has been that rates will move to a higher level. Um, you know, the, the Federal Reserve uh, had a liftoff uh, many years after the global financial crisis, but never really got rates back to what we would call uh, their natural or uh, neutral rate level um, before they had to bring them back down again. And then with COVID, uh, you know, it, it really depressed uh, global rates. Having the Fed funds rate below our inflation estimate over the long term and below the Fed, Federal Reserve's inflation estimate over the long term, um, we felt that that's something that's not sustainable. It certainly isn't attractive. Um, and as a result, we have positioned our portfolios for many years with lower interest rate risk or lower duration than our benchmark, uh, and in many cases, lower than peers as well. Uh, in the ETF portfolios, we can't hold alternative strategies, but in some of our other portfolios, like Real Return, for example, they do hold alternative strategies in there as another way in, in your fixed income bucket uh, to sort of think about ways to diversify that interest rate risk uh, away. Within equities, U.S. growth is an area where we have been uh, certainly underweight. Um, and those stocks have seen a huge tailwind from low rates. They can borrow at very low levels uh, of interest 
and use that money to finance uh, growth. Uh, and so those companies have really benefited. We've been underweight large cap growth for quite some time uh, as we felt uh, you know, rising rates would certainly impact those companies. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. We've obviously seen that to start the year. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, Carol, maybe I'll, I'll pass it back to you, but I know we want to discuss, um, you know, the, the beginning of the year, uh, how we've seen uh, assets shift around a little bit, uh, and we can talk about some changes within the portfolio. Yeah, Paul, thank you so much for kind of setting the stage in terms of, of how we, we adjusted our portfolio. But, you know, obviously inflation over the past few months continues to, to increase month after month. So um, as you just mentioned, can you maybe talk about some of the recent changes that you've made to your position with across the ETF portfolios? That'd be great. Yeah, let's, let's go on to the next slide and I'll just highlight this really quickly. Um, we can look at some of our current positioning. So um, as we've seen... Uh, really strong results from energy and also uh, in treasury inflation protected securities, we have trimmed in those areas. We're still overweight tips. We're still overweight energy. We're still overweight value. Um, but we've taken the opportunity to add a little bit of growth back into the portfolio to uh, trim these hedges. Um, it might seem counterintuitive, for example, to say we're concerned about inflation uh, and reduce our energy and tips bets. But um, you know, the market is a forward-looking uh, environment and, and investors have essentially um, taken the position that we had held leading up to uh, rising rates and inflation. And those assets have seen increase in value. So from our perspective, it's done the job that we, that we wanted it to do. Uh, and we still think there's uh, potentially some more room to run there. So we've been slowly scaling out of it while maintaining that overweight uh, and having that benefit in the portfolios. One other thing we've done with the equity pullback to start the year is also trim a little bit from fixed income overall and move it to equities. Um, you know, we still don't see strong um, uh, earnings potential uh, capital appreciation within uh, fixed income right now. Rates are still below inflation. You're earning negative uh, real returns, and we don't believe that's attractive. And even with uh, moderately high equity valuations, uh, they have come down a little bit to start the year, and we've taken that opportunity to move uh, closer or almost entirely neutral um, with regards to our benchmark there. Great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, let's go ahead and, and switch gears and, and now talk about our ESG asset allocation portfolios. So, you know, ESG is uh, our three letters that I think are getting um, a lot of airtime lately. And I think you're seeing it across not only uh, different corporations kind of looking at their sustainability, but then also from an investment perspective, we've seen um, definitely an uptick. And you know, lastly, from investors, right? So, um, you know, I can't believe that it was uh, a handful of years ago that we're already um, with our ESGS and allocation portfolios hitting that three-year mark not that long ago, a few months back, um, which, you know, you had kind of created and continue to manage. So, um, you know, obviously there are going to be some similarities to our ETF asset allocation portfolios from an investment process perspective, but then there's also some differences. So, um, you know, I know, I know a big part of what you and your team do is, you know, from a due diligence perspective is really 
to assess and assign and ensure that, you know, their ESG commitment that is being, um, you know, you're available to kind of see that commitment through and through the investment process of the underlying funds that you're investing in. Um, so, you know, but like as I mentioned, there's also some differences as well. So can you talk a bit about the differences between the ETF and the ESG asset allocation portfolio specifically from an asset allocation or valuation driven uh, asset allocation perspective? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we touched on at the beginning that uh, something that's on investors' concerns, uh, investors' mind right now is concern around the global conflict. And so perhaps uh, uh, the advisors on the call are having conversations with their clients or their clients are concerned with what they're holding and perhaps realizing that, you know, maybe their values uh, are important uh, as part of uh, their financial goals, uh, maybe they have additional goals with what they uh, do with their investment portfolio. And um, we've designed these portfolios to follow the same approach that we just talked about with our ETF portfolios in terms of uh, using our valuation-driven approach. Uh, We see these as a core portfolio holding. You could almost think of the ESG asset allocation portfolios as an interchangeable uh, series with the ETF portfolios if you were to combine it with another series. As Carolyn, as you mentioned, the big difference is that um, we want to give folks a similar experience um, in terms of having that core asset allocation solution, but with the intentional uh, goal of a a strong commitment to ESG. And so uh, some of the differences are, you know, for example, you're going to see less energy exposure. You're going to see less targeted exposure um, relative to our ETF portfolios. For example, we can't uh, invest directly in sectors and countries. Um, There's perhaps going to be a little bit more growth exposure on the margins because those companies tend to um, score a little bit better than uh, energy fossil fuels, of course, and uh, some industrials and material companies. We factor that in when we build the portfolios. Um, But again, we're relying on these managers more uh, than we are that uh, explicit uh, asset allocation bets that we could take within the ETF portfolios. This will inevitably lead to some short-term performance differential. But again, our goal is that over the long term, you have that similar experience and opportunity to meet your financial goals while also doing it in a way that's aligned with investors' values. Great. And Paul, I know that you know part of the diversification for the ESG asset allocation portfolios is also across different ESG approaches as well. So while you may have uh, certain managers that may be you know, looking to exclude uh, certain parts of the market, others may be looking to allocate to those leaders within those specific parts of the market. And so I know a big job for you then is to really kind of monitor it, not only at the individual fund level, but then also collectively at the portfolio level. So um, can you talk a bit or maybe walk us through you know, some of those areas where we may have lesser exposure um, you know, in these ESG asset allocation portfolios, specifically to kind of the controversial product involvement uh, relative to our ETF portfolios. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm. I, this slide always excites me because it, it's a, it shows the you know explicit differential between you know let's say a non-ESG portfolio and an ESG portfolio. So what we're showing here is um, our aggressive growth ESG portfolio and our aggressive growth ETF portfolio. And then the bottom line there with the red highlights is the difference. And so what you're seeing is in, in all these instances for um, sort of these controversial product involvements, the ESG 
portfolio has less exposure than our ETF portfolio. And I highlighted three buckets here just in case conversations around the global conflict are coming up and you know folks are concerned with investments and controversial weapons here. Um, you know, we might not have a huge amount in our ETF portfolios, but um, it's almost a, a completely negligible amount in our ESG portfolios. It's about uh, half the exposure in terms of military military contracting, more than half uh, less for small arms. So just a couple of uh, weapons areas. Uh, there's, of course, others that you can see on here. And I think it's really important that when we say we're um, investing with managers that are aligned with people's values, that we show you how uh, and that we follow through with that. And you know, this is one great example of controversial product involvement areas. Um, and if we can move one slide further, um, you know, this certainly doesn't relate to the global conflict explicitly, but um, carbon emissions and fossil fuels are certainly another area that, that really are weighing heavily on investors' minds. And um, our ESG asset allocation series uh, earned a Morningstar low carbon designation. Um, whereas our ETF portfolios do not, uh, you can see the uh, huge difference in the amount of emissions uh, and carbon intensity within our ESG portfolios relative to our ETF portfolios. Uh, you can see in terms of severe and high and medium carbon risk, we've got much less exposure in our ESG portfolios. We've shifted that risk down to low and negligible. So, you know, really... Um, really focused on the E in the ESG uh, with these portfolios here. And in terms of carbon product involvement, again, you can see here, um, all instances, the ESG portfolio has lower carbon product involvement than a similar uh, portfolio uh, that we run with our ETFs, um, meaningfully lower for fossil fuels, oil and gas production, and oil and gas generation. So, you know, really happy that we can, um, you know, we have good data now. We're getting more data. We'll be able to show more of this to you all in the future. But um, for folks where either the conflict or certain specific values-based uh, things are weighing on, uh, on their minds, you know, we do have this other solution that can be thought of as an interchangeable solution with our ETF portfolios. And I think that's really exciting. Great. Thank you so much, Paul, for that great discussion around kind of the similarities and the differences between the ETF and ESG portfolios. Um, I know we're coming up upon the hour, so I do uh, want to leave some time for a few questions we've received. And if we are unable to answer your questions uh, here within the next few minutes, we will definitely ensure that one of our regional sales directors does follow up with your questions. So I'm going to kind of pick one since I know we're kind of short on time. Um, but, you know, this is maybe for you, Paul. Can you talk about the type of energy exposure within your portfolios and how a long-term transition to renewable energy from fossil fuels impacts your long-term view on energy? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because with our ETF portfolios where we are not constrained by sort of a values-based lens um, and we're more for, focused on total returns, we we don't ignore this idea of uh, the negative externalities of fossil fuels and the long-term transition to renewable energy. In fact, part of our asset class research is assessing fundamental risk of any uh, asset that we're investing in. And part of that ESG actually uh, falls, falls into that pillar. And energy scores poorly uh, 
on fundamental risk because uh, we do believe that there is risk to uh, that asset through um, government intervention, through taxing policy, through uh, the general desire for companies uh, and for the world to sort of move away from uh, fossil fuels and carbon emitting uh, products. The research that we performed, however, shows that um, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Many of the big uh, oil and gas companies are transitioning to become big energy companies. And part of that is uh, a commitment to also having uh, renewables. In Europe specifically, uh, you're seeing a, a lot of those companies' uh, capital allocation shift more towards renewables to uh, really bolster their business for the expected future demand there. Um, utility companies are generating more renewable energy. And, um, you know, many of the, the goals that you hear in terms of uh, combating climate change talks about how we want to reduce the, um, the temperature rise. Uh, but we're talking about decades into the future here. Um, there's no easy way for us to uh, extract the use of uh, fossil fuel-based energy from our economy in the, in the super short term. And so, um, you know, we believe that uh, you can expect uh, a higher return because uh, folks have really downplayed, uh, you know, how long this transition is going to take, or, um, you know, perhaps there's been this demand through ESG investors to move away from those companies. And that's created an opportunity from a valuation perspective for folks that don't have that lens to really step in and hopefully reap, uh, reap the benefit. So, um, it's something where if we didn't have these risks, perhaps we would have a higher allocation to energy. Uh, I also think, if we didn't have these risks, other people wouldn't have uh, left that sector uh, as fast as they did. So uh, it is a double-edged sword, but um, we certainly are thinking about that transition, the time horizon of that transition and what it means for our investment. Great. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Tyler and Ricky. Uh, great discussion. A big thank you to everyone uh, that was able to join us today on our webinar and for those of you that were able to submit questions. Um, but I think there are a lot of valuable takeaways today. And so um, we hope that you really did enjoy this session. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Simple But Not Easy. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find us on the podcast platform of your choice just as you can find more investment analysis and thought leadership at mp.morningstar.com. Thank you once again for your time and attention, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision. 